Our Father, we gather in this room in a world where there's so many, many people, many of them suffering like we cannot imagine. And here we are, Lord, in this quiet place, this beautiful place, with family members to learn more about you. And I pray that it may be you talking this morning. It won't be our thoughts, but just, Lord, that let us sit at your feet. And may your spirit speak to each person this morning, including my, uh, my heart, Lord. And um, may we leave this place refreshed, but more than that, closer to, to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. A few years ago, quite a few years ago, I was at the Youth Congress. I was living in Europe at that time. I was about 15, 16, 16. And um, I was getting ready to be an architect. I loved art and beautiful buildings and you know, all of that. And I was watching some slides on a mission spotlight or something like that at that Youth Congress. And suddenly it was as if I was alone in that room where there were probably about a thousand people. And I did not hear any voice, but it was just an inner conviction. What are you doing when there are so many people in need of, I didn't even place words there, in need. Um, so at that moment, I had a conviction that I needed to switch uh, courses, and um, which I did. I went home and I said, Mom, Dad, you know, my grades were good. So I told them, look, I, I'm quitting that, and I want to be a missionary. So... Um, so they said, well, I, I, I said, look, um, maybe a doctor. So uh, they were happy. You know, it was, it was okay, comparable. I, in my mind, it was also, uh, or a pastor. But, uh, you know, they thought that pastors were people who didn't have anything else to do. Uh, so they went into the ministry. So I, very cautiously, I, I didn't mention that possibility because I knew that there would be a lot of opposition. So um, then... But in my heart, it was either to be a minister or a pastor somewhere in Africa. I was born in Africa. I was born near the mission stations. Bongo Mission Hospital was, was uh, near my home. We had become Seventh-day Adventists at that stage. So mission life was known to me. So I wanted to go back. We left because of the war, and I wanted to go back to mission work. And so, um, yes, I, I did go back. I went to South Africa. And I took uh, medicine in Cape Town. And the purpose was to go to the mission field. 
You know, everything I did. And then uh, I met um, Marianne Wright at that time, and um, we loved each other, and she was uh, also at medical school training to be a doctor. And everything we did was to go to the mission field. She did surgery. I thought, well, somebody has to put the people to sleep. So I, did, I never wanted to do anesthetic, so I did anesthesiology, you know. For, and uh, she would do that. I never did gynecology after I met her. You know, it's, uh, it was, everything was in combination. And so, um, and, and so, and we've been working together since then. And then there was a call that came from the South African Union and they, they said, look, we need to start medical work with a, a tribe of northern Namibia called the Himba. Now, if you want to see some interesting people, go to Google and just place the Himba, H-I-M-B-A. Some of you probably receive the AFM magazine, and there's a project in Namibia with, with uh, Pam and Gideon Peterson. So that's the project we, we got uh, involved with. So... Um, and we went there. Now, just a description of the people. The people who are not naked, but in our, for our standards, they are. You know, they, they don't wear almost anything. Some uh, skins and, um, and coverings, yes, they otherwise just open, okay. And um, live in little huts. Uh, f- in our standards, they live very poorly, okay. And so we went over, afraid of malaria, afraid of all of that, but we went over and we stayed about four years. Now, the needs were tremendous. We had many refugees from Angola that came over the border, running away from the war. And so you would go into the slum areas, and it was, it was filthy. And, and, and it was, not with the Himbas, but, you know, the slums with the refugees and the very poor people, and so we were in the mission field. And the idea was to start up the work there. The Himbas had always resisted westernization and Christianity. They looked at what happened to the fellow tribes around them with westernization. So they said, we're not interested in this. We're not interested in alcohol. We're not interested in prostitution. We're not interested in that. Let us be the way we want to be. And so they're very comparable to the Maasai's, okay, in... Um, in Kenya, in Tanzania, and uh, so, so we were there. They had never heard about the gospel. They lived in a way that I've described to you. So we worked there for four years, and you know, life went on. Very stressful. You know, seventy-five bed hospital, nine peripheral clinics, three doctors. It was the mission field, mm-hmm. and some of you probably have been to the mission field and know what I'm talking about, either on a long-term or on a short-term. You know, some of you have had that experience. We were there, and we, um, I believe the Lord used our, um, our hands and our hearts, our inefficiency and our mistakes to bring hope to the people. And the, and, and, and the project is there. AFM has taken over that project, and it's a good project to support because those are our very, very close friends. After about four years, um, there was the idea of continuing further education in the UK, so we applied to Cambridge, and um, I was accepted to do a residency program there um, in something different, in pediatrics, and in the process of transition, um, we came over 
to visit some friends at Wildwood. I had some relatives at Wildwood. I'd heard about Wildwood, and I was very skeptical, <laughs> extremely skeptical. That's where I met you for the first time, at one of the health seminars. So I came to Wildwood watching everything. This is weird people I had heard about, you know, and, and all these things. And, 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 and so my first week there was one of um, scrutiny. Yes, not, not shock, no, scrutiny, <laughs> scrutiny. I was shocked, but for the ro- good reasons, you know. And then I saw things that I'd never seen before. I'd been in, you know, as a missionary. And just prior to that visit, it was a, a social visit. You know, it was a, just to visit my relatives there. Just prior to that visit, the Portuguese Union, see, I'm Portuguese by descent because I was born to a Portuguese family in Africa, okay? The Portuguese Union said, you know, Viriato, Marianne, you missionaries in Africa, why don't you become missionaries in Portugal? I was not interested. Not at all. My heart was in where? The mission field, okay? I thought, well, let me get my program in... Um, oh, it's okay. Don't, don't, don't have to connect. Yeah. Um, so, I, so when they said, come back, come to Europe, I said, no. Well, I told myself and my wife, well, I'm not interested. There are so many Adventist doctors. Let them do the work that needs to be done. We want to go where there's no doctor and where there's no Adventist. And so um, the mission field, okay? So, but we continued to pray. I came to visit my relatives, and when I was working at the... Cl- and, and then I stayed. Um, after the first week, I th- all my preconceived ideas, all of that, it was just... It just faded away. I saw pe- loving people. I saw the spirit of sacrifice that I had never seen anywhere else in church work, you know? And, and I saw wonderful doctors who were balanced, you know? They never put anyone at risk with, with uh, the, you know, the way they treat people. And I was converted, really. I had seen something that I'd never seen in terms of medical results as well, in lifestyle. And, you know, lifestyle medicine, I was an Adventist. I've been an Adventist since I was five. So, you know, all these things were sort of nature, but I'd never seen true lifestyle medicine, okay? And um, so we, we ended up staying for two and a half years. Now, at Wildwood, now. What impressed me, and this is where the seminar comes, uh, comes into, the, the theme for this seminar, is that I thought real needs were in the mission field. Now, at Wildwood, which is, you know, not so far from here, and uh, maybe 800 miles, that's not far for the US, U.S. standards. So, you know, I, th- I was working at the clinic um, as a medical doctor there, and... Um, and I was seeing these people coming in their expensive cars. And, you know, you could see they, they, they were not my poor Himba friends, okay? And, you know, they would bring, out, bring that list of medications, you know, 10, 14, 12, 15, you know, antidepressants on most of them. And I thought, you know, this is something I had not experienced before. To see... Why are, why are the people taking all of these? Most of them on antidepressants, and that's, that was the reality. And talking to them, they would just open up in areas of life that revealed deep, agonizing pain, divorce, 
kids that kids that I have not seen for months or years. Um, some of them, you know, the, the kids with on drugs, mothers and fathers that were, that had sleepless nights for weeks, for months, for years. Okay, waking up at two o'clock in the morning, not being able to sleep until six o'clock, and then sleeping just a little bit, and then they have to get up and go to work. And I thought, you know, what, what a pain. And the question came, was just, just a thought, I wonder who's suffering more. My friends under a tree somewhere in northern Namibia, or my new friends in Georgia, it's not Georgia. I mean, people came from all over the U.S. But the agony. And when I would ask them, you know, have you ever thought of ending your life? You know, people would come with high blood pressure and cholesterol problems and diabetes and, and, and antidepressants. And we would go on to the, to the you know, to the more um, emotional health issues. And... They would say, yes, doctor. Now, what takes for a person to think about ending life? How much, how much pain? And I tell you, it wasn't just one. Some of them would not want to discuss the issue. Well, you know, very politely, they said, no, I would never think about that. Well, I'm not so sure. Okay. And so um, then at that time, the mission field became a little bit broader than just Africa. Okay. And I started understanding that pain and fear were universal. It's not just limited to one specific area of the world or one specific set of circumstances or needs. Satan, I must confess, he has done a good job in destroying or attempting to destroy and take away hope from people. But God has done a better job. And that's why we're here today. Now, after that, See, the union had asked us to go to Portugal and do this, and I didn't want to go. And that process, the change started coming. And it started coming very gradually. And so we started feeling more confident about this idea of going to Portugal. Eventually, we said, yes, we're coming. We have no money. They said, we have no money either. So I said, well, the Lord will provide. And the idea was to start a lifestyle center in Portugal, similar to Weimar Wildwood, to start one in Portugal. And ASI very kindly, about eight, ten years ago, I can't remember, about eight years ago, gave a little bit of seed money so that we could start that. And so we opened, we don't have money for a lifestyle center, so we opened a little consultation room in the, the heart of Lisbon. No, um, we had done the medical exams there, so uh, it, it, was, it started from zero, okay? And we started seeing patients. Now... Europe is known as a very secularized place of, on earth. What do you understand by 
When, when, we, when I say it's a secularized nation, what do you, th what do you understand by that? Sorry? Without God. Without God, okay. What pictures come to your mind? I, I, I see Sue. France, okay. What? Is it a secularized country, France? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I believe that there is a codependency on believing in philosophers, mm -hmm. believing what has history has been able to uh, create. Mm -hmm. And that is, in a way, the enlightenment that was a rebellion against, against something. Something else. I'll take some of those words and I'll, we'll elaborate on them. Now, when we talk about secularism, most people think, you know, this is a, this is a, a godless place. Okay? It's, it's religion or... No, don't, people don't think about religion. They think spirituality is not part of this. Okay. Now, I was in for a, a surprise. And that's why, why we're here today. See, I started seeing patients mingling with the people, and God had other plans. You know, we, he, we are now building the Lifestyle Center, slowly as the funds come in, and so we're building. But God had other plans for these five years, the first five years. We started doing health expos with ASI when I was here in the States, before 2002, before we moved. And so when we came over to Portugal, we started doing health expos. One, people didn't know what it was, and one, the first one, and, and, and let me give you the setting. The setting is this. You invite somebody to an evangelistic series. And I'll give you an example. 2010. The book Steps to Christ was edited, was published, okay? 700,000 copies. Now, Portugal has 10 million people. is the size of Florida. 700,000. Is it a good number? 700,000? It's a good number. Okay, 700,000. And it was distributed in about two weeks. And inside, it was a big project for the church. The church has 10,000 members. Inside, each step to, Steps to Christ, there was an invitation for an evangelistic series. And there were 100 evangelistic series simultaneously throughout Portugal. Okay? On the same, well, at the same time. Okay? Let me tell you. How many people came to the series? Well, most churches had two or three. Okay, yes. 700,000 invitations. Okay, maybe not all the books were distributed. Let's say 600,000. It's a good number. It's a good number. What's the percentage of people in the U.S. that come with 600,000 flyers? Okay. I, Pastor Finley is not here, so, uh, but you would know. Okay, he knows precisely. But it's not many. There, it's probably even less. People do not come. You go door to door, what's the response? Most people don't even open. Okay? You want to start a religious conversation? What do people say? It's a secularized place. And we go away feeling, well, you know, people are not interested. They are just, they are bad people. I mean, Satan has control then. 
Well, it may not be so. In fact, it isn't. We started seeing these health doing these health expos. The first one, people were saying, well, it doesn't work, doesn't work. The first one, 650 people came for health. Okay? And what did they come to do? Cholesterol, simple things that they can have done two, three, four times a year, every week if they want. And it cost them almost nothing. It's, it's socialized medicine like in Canada. Okay? And people ask, you know, people don't come. They said they don't come. Well, 650 in a place that had a little church with one nurse only. The following year, that was 2003, we did five health expos. I see, well, we don't need to see the pictures. You, you see crowds everywhere. So, uh, you know, in one health expo just outside Lisbon, it was 2,800 people in a few days. Another one in the north was 1,500 people, and so on. And people couldn't believe, people in the church could not believe this. Okay. And now comes the very interesting part, is that as they go through a health expo, and you've seen the health expos, I'm a great promoter of health expos. As you go through a health expo, you spend maybe two hours or three going through all the booths, taking all your little things, okay, cholesterol, and you come to the end to a doctor or a nurse or a nutritionist for some counseling. Now, they can get all of these, well, partially, at their family doctor. But they come, and they sit down. And the typical story is this. You see, there's high blood pressure. Most people have high blood pressure because, you know, for whatever reason. Now, you, you start talking to them. You know, I see your blood pressure is high. Do you know about salt? Oh, yes, doctor. You know, I eat very little salt. Do you know about fat? Oh, yeah. No, you know, we really cut down on fat. And you go on, and everything is okay, you know? And then you come to, what about anxiety? Yeah, doctor. I think it's, that's, that's the one. I, and some of them, they start crying at that point. And they say, you know, I, I really cannot take it any longer. Because of whatever, my husband has left me, or he's got somebody else, or my child, or whatever, you know, or I, I just fight continually at home, and, and they start talking about that. And you are in. You're there where it hurts the most. And maybe five, ten minutes later, you ask this person, how does faith help you? Do you? Are you a believer? The immediate response is, oh, doctor, I, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm, but I, I'm not a practicing one. Or, um, that is the, the traditional answer. And I, ask, I tell them, look, I, I didn't ask you to which church you belong. I'm asking deep inside, do you believe there is a God? Now, secularized Europe... Portugal, France, Spain, Germany, Sweden. We've done this everywhere. I have not heard one person that said no. Oh, okay. They said, yes, uh, can you, okay. The, I have not heard one saying, no, I don't believe in anything. They say sometimes, I believe there must be something. There must be somebody. But, you know, I don't understand. Um, they often say, um, 
you know, I don't understand certain issues about wars and famines and, you know, why, why are the innocent suffering? And so on. That's what people talk about. And let me tell you something. Even knowing the great, knowing the great controversy, some of these issues, I don't understand them myself. I, I have to say, Lord, you know what's happening. I don't understand why these happen. But I know there's a great controversy. And so what happens, and, and people hear and, and, and they read on the news about, you know, all the scandals. They go to the churches and they see the pomp and all of that. And, you know, and, and these people stop going to church. They want to be true to their own consciences. And they stop going. And you know what has happened? They have lost faith in organized religion. In all groups. And everybody comes. And they say they've got a truth. And they want you to go to their church. Or whatever. You know. Promoting truth. And they back off. And they live privately. Yes. Just give me a minute. They live privately. And you know. That mixed with financial independence. You know, Europeans are not necessarily the sort of the poor of the earth. Okay, there is financial independence. That there is a higher level of academic education. People are, you know, they are known to. You stimulate individualism. Your thoughts are important. Your life is important. So you've got financial independence. You've got high level of of uh, academia. Okay, you're stimulated to think for yourself. And then you come as a group and you tell them, look, this is what's going to happen. So people just say, hey, what about this? How can you explain all this suffering? In fact, I'm not interested in talking to you. And so they go on in life with private pain and private questions. Okay? Now, I was in Sweden promoting some health expos with some people with Lifestyle TV with Klaus Nebo, he's here, okay? Now, Lifestyle TV, Sweden, let me tell you, Sweden is supposed to be the most secularized country in the world, okay? Now, religion is taught at school as a myth, okay? The Bible is a book of fairy tales, okay? It's, it's like the place of Christianity is just in that society is, is virtually zero, you know, institutionally, okay? Now, Klaus asked us to help them develop some health expo programs, so we went over and we did the health expo in Malmö, in the south of Switzerland, just on the other side of Copenhagen. Um, so, um, now, what would you expect? And something, he, he put the Seventh-day Adventist logo there, okay? So, I thought... You know, God, you've made this work everywhere else. And I believe that if it is your work, it's going to be successful here. But we didn't know if people were going to come. Well, they came. They came by the hundreds. The first one, there were 600 people coming. It was only two days, huh? Only two days. And 10% of the people, guess what? They asked for Bible studies. Yeah. Now, in Sweden... And 80% of those who attended were young people in their late teens 
and in their 20s. Now, how can you explain this? Well, I, I, I'm a firm believer of health ministries. The health message really opens, the, it's the entering wedge. But I'm talking about something else here. At one of the seminars, a young person was a Bible worker in Malmo. He had been knocking on doors, okay, in Sweden, knocking on doors. But he got some reasonable response, and, and he, he said from the pulpit, I want to tell you that I have not found one atheist. In Sweden. And his response was, matched my experience in which people tell you that they believe. They believe there is somebody. Okay? But they don't go to church. About 3 to 6% of people go to church in Sweden. Now, just to emphasize this point. Last year, about a year ago, I was driving... I was, we were preparing a big global conference uh, with the General Conference in Geneva and uh, health ministries. And I, in just a few days, I had a lot of work to do. So I was driving to the shopping mall to get some cell phones to, for the conference. And I come to an accident. Uh, you know, it just had happened. And I felt I needed to, you know, in Europe, when you see an accident, the most likely thing is that you find one or two ambulances next to the person already. I mean, it's, it's so quick, the response. But at that time, it just happened. I didn't know I was... I actually turned around to go the other way uh, because I, I, I thought the ambulances would be there. There were many cars in front of uh, mine. And, uh, but there was a very strong conviction to stop and go. And as I went, I saw a man lying on the, on the, on the road... Uh, with a big motorbike and, and so on. And I approached the, the people. There was a nurse. Um, she identified herself as a nurse and said, well, he's dead. So, uh, so to cut a long story short, the man was not dead. I, I felt the pulses, there were no pulses except for the carotid pulse at about 20 per minute. So he was about to die, any second that part. But we, um, um, we resuscitated him. Well, God did. And... Uh, and, and so on, and the man survived, and he went to the hospital, and so on. And, but he was paralyzed. He had, um, had a motorbike accident, often produced that, you know, that sort of result. So he was paralyzed, and from neck down. And, um, and then I, the family, but I left to Switzerland, and a month and a half later, I went past the hospital, and I thought, I wonder if the man is still alive. So I went in, and yes, the man was, was still alive. He was par- I found out that he was paralyzed. And then the, the doctor said, you know, the family would love to meet you. And so being very busy, I, I wanted to do that. But, you know, I, eventually one day I came to my home, and there was a little piece of paper on my door. It says, you know, I'm the family member or whatever. We would love to meet you. And the person lived just a few houses down my house. Wow. Incredible. So uh, then and we organized uh, for, for a, a, a meeting. And so, um, and who's this family? Well, uh, he was an engineer, uh, very high up in society. And uh, engineer who, and the hobby was motorbikes. Okay, he had this huge motorbike that was actually the cause uh, of the accident. And, uh, and the daughter was about... She's about 35, 30-something, Ph.D. in virology. She's an HIV researcher. The husband, the, the, the son-in-law is a Ph.D. in marine biology. You know, very educated people. 
And they were so thankful. Well, the father was ventilated still because he, he, the, the, the level of injury was quite high. And so he, was being, he would never be off a ventilator. Okay? But the man had such a drive for life. So I went to see him in the hospital. And so a relationship started. A friendship. And this family, then the father eventually died. And I went to the funeral. And I tell you, these people don't go to church. They are highly educated intellectuals. If you call them, if you ask them, are they uh, believers? They will tell you, oh, we don't go to church. We don't belong to any church. We, we don't, we're not interested in religion and so on. But a friendship has developed. And in that friendship, especially after the father's death, We invited them for my son's birthday party because they've got a nine-year-old son. And they came over. And then the process of grieving, you know, to be there. I, I was there in their home one Sabbath morning when I found out that the father had just died. They lived just next to the, ch to the church. And I dropped the people, my family at church, and I went to visit them. The death had just happened about an hour before. The questions, Why? The issues of believing coming in, all of these. And to be there just to comfort, just to be there. Many times you don't say anything. Many, uh, what, what, I mean, why did the man die? It was a silly death. You know, it was, it was the result of, a, they, they were doing a, a um, colostomy. And uh, there was peritonitis because uh, it just leaked it a little bit inside. I mean, there was... It had nothing to do with the accident, okay? And all these issues, the friendship that started. This past Sunday, they invited us to come to their summer home, beautiful home, right by the river. And I was walking with a widow. A year has gone by. And we were walking together along the river, and uh, she was saying, you know, I just don't understand why that happened. And she said, but maybe one day we will. Maybe one day we will. They know I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. They know I'm a vegetarian. They invited us to their home. They prepared a beautiful vegetarian meal. We've invited them to our home. And these, the closeness... I could tell you story after story. Now, I've realized that I was first wrong about my perception of mission field. Second, I was wrong about my perception of people's spirituality or lack of it. Today, I believe everyone is spiritual. And Europe is a highly spiritual place, just like all others, just like all others. But it is an irreligious place. It's a place where people have lost confidence and trust, not in God, even though they don't understand, 
but in other people who claim themselves to be the children of God. There's a verse in, uh, oh, I forget where it is now, where Paul says that basically you have caused the people to sin in not believing because of the way you led your lives. And that is exactly what's happened. See, you look at the character of the church, and I include here every church, including the Seventh-day Adventist church. Look at the character. You know, the char- what, is, what is somebody's character? Okay? Is what, you, what they are, what you feel when, the, when you are with them. They, you know, and the character of the Christian church many times has been very different from the character of Christ. And people, because they are, they, everybody has got a receptor for the Holy Spirit. And that, I, I tell you, now I'm so convinced of that, after talking to thousands of patients, and you know, everybody's got a receptor. Inside, the radio works, because there's something inside that catches the radio waves. Isn't it? Everybody's got that receptor for the Holy Spirit. When they look at these, they think, mm, 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 mm. I don't want this. Okay. But when they see something that the receptor identifies as the correct. I had people in, in, in Himbaland okay, who could not read or write. We would preach, and one of them would come to us and says, You know, doctor, you know, usually above 60, 70, says, You know, doctor or pastor or whatever. I know what you're saying is right. I said, well, how do you know? Who told you? I know it. I have known that for years. I have known that. Why? Because the receptor, and you read Romans 2. Go home and read Romans 2. Okay? The receptor is there. But these receptor also, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? It helps us to discern between what? Yes. Why do some people have receptors and others not? No, I don't buy that. Some people don't accept the, the message that comes in the reception, in the radio. Okay? Okay? And you can, you can close yourself to the voice of the Holy Spirit. But the receptors are there. The problem has been with me. The way in which I've led my life. And I, can, I came to the conclusion that I did not know how to be what Jesus was with people. I did not know how to be a friend. Many of us, evangelical, Protestant, Christians, whatever, we have stopped knowing how to mingle with people. When we sit with somebody, you know, just a new friend, whatever, what do we think about immediately? I need to talk to them about the Sabbath. Or about whatever, you know, the, the 27 fundamental beliefs. Two, th- three or four weeks ago, I was at the GC, and I came across this article. USA Today, it's a reputable newspaper, isn't it? Okay, USA Today. And the article's title is, How to Sell Christianity. Ask an Atheist. I, I, you know, it caught my attention. 
And the, the sort of the, the, the subtitles here is, Fishing for New Believers is a Tricky Business. One evangelical found that, he, that his in-your-face approach may have been driving off potential believers instead of reeling them in. That's when he decided to enlist a man who didn't believe a word of it. The result, no sales pitch at all. And there is something here that says, basically the idea is, just be yourself. Just be interested in people. And it says here, call it promotion by non-promotion, evangelism by attraction, goodwill mongering, or letting one's life speak for itself. But this is what will best represent the faith among the merry Americans who do not share the evangelical faith. Henderson and his fellow travelers are right in urging would-be evangelists simply to get to know people, become their friends, and let the spiritual chips fall where they may. Sister, I was going to get there. Exactly. Christ's method. You know what I've realized with my patients? Sometimes in my consultations, I, at the end of the consultations, you know, I tell them, you know, and these are non-Adventists, you know, people who have had one lady, I just sidetrack here, one lady came to me, and you know, she was depressed, you know, all the problems, and she was, she was about 60, 55, 60. Two weeks into her marriage, she found out that the husband was sleeping around with somebody else. Two weeks, 35 years, or 40 years before. She lived through that, together with that man. 40 years. Okay. And she told me, she was not an Adventist, she told me of the way how God helped her. At the end of the consultations, many times I, I tell them, you know, you came here for a consultation. You're going to pay me for that consultation, but I should pay you for the lessons you've, you've taught me. Doctor, how much have you learned from your patients? A great deal. A great deal. We often have this attitude that we are the ones who have the truth Therefore, we're going to give that truth <laughs> and forget that everybody has the spiritual receptor and that God is leading them. The resilience, the lessons that they can teach you, the way in which they, you know, non-Adventists, people who don't go to church, even to the Catholic Church, and they say, Doctor, I pray, and God hears me. I pray at night in my heart. No words, I just pray. The church that has misrepresented Christ throughout centuries has not taken away the receptors to the Holy Spirit. And it will not. Now, what is our role as Christians? First, and that... These are simple lessons that I've observed and I've learned. I'm still learning. I'm still in grade one. Be willing to be a friend. We say amen. I say amen. But I tell you, I feel it's an area 
that we don't know much about. Go with people, shopping. Invite them to your home. Without the intention of inviting them to your Bible study the following week. No, just be your friend. Second, be willing to learn. To learn. They can teach you much. You know, get down to earth. Jesus mingled with people. What did he do? He mingled with people. Does that mean that he wanted them to come to the synagogue on Sabbath? Yes, he wanted them to have a close relationship with the Father. But he mingled with them as one who what? Desired their good. He mingled. He was just there. It's such a simple lesson. I didn't know where to start to prepare this, this seminar. It's so simple. You know, just be there. I spent the whole afternoon with that family. We went for a walk along the river. You know, the kids played. They loved. You know, we've got sons of the same age. No one else could have an access to that family like the one I have now. I was the man that God put to save that man's life for six months, to sort out his life, his business, whatever, his relationships. There were problems with relationships. All of that was sorted out before he died. And the family said, you know what? I'm glad that he was amongst us for six months. We could sort so many issues out. So I've got access. No, you don't. But I'm there. But you are where I'm not. With pe- and you too. Everybody's got their circle. And if each one of us knew how to just be friends, you don't have to stop being the vegetarian that you think you, you know. No, no, they respect you. You don't have to, you, mean, you don't have to lose your identity, but just gain one, the one of Christ. Amen. Just be friends. Second, be willing to learn. Open. Look at people. Look, Aaron Muth, I've never met you. When I look at you, I need to see somebody that is more valuable than I am. And if we know, and you're an Adventist? Okay. If you were not, it would make no difference. No difference. I can't look, you, look at you as a second-class lost citizen. You are a child of God just like I am. That's why Jesus mingled with the people. He was one of us. Okay? There's something else. We need to continue or to start, perhaps, addressing the issues of our own faith. Who understands suffering here? Who understands suffering? Do you? You understand suffering. One who has suffered. Sorry? One who has suffered. One who has suffered. <laughs> who understands why suffering is here? We've got an idea, because we know the great controversy between good and evil. Okay. Who understands why that child was raped at the age of eight or seven by the father? And it was a lovely child. Who understands that? Do you understand that? 
the conflict between good and evil. That is the framework. But I tell you, it hurts. And sometimes we have to say to that mother or to that father, you know, I believe there's a conflict and I believe there are things going on that I don't understand. It's painful. I don't understand why that happened to that specific girl. In other words, be yourself in your lack of understanding. Accept the fact that you don't know everything. Be human with the human beings. If you sense that there is an area that faith only keeps you where you are, admit that. Sometimes our explanations do more damage than good. Come to the point is where you say, well, there are many things I don't understand, but when I look at Jesus, and you can share that with your friends, when I look at Jesus, at his sacrifice for me, and for all of us, and, and he had no sin, then I begin to understand. But I still don't understand many things. In other words, expose yourself. Be willing to learn and to expose. In other words, be like... And you know what this does? According to this little article, I'm not basing anything on this, but it's just interesting that it came. It says, people feel close to you. See? People feel that, 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 that you, you are with them. And then at that point, you said, you know, but there must be hope. And I believe, you know, when I, and you can share with people openly, without Bible punching, but just from heart to heart. You know what? You can talk like that to atheists. There was a man who wrote a book when... We can go on and on. Hey, we can go on and on. There was a man who wrote a book about three months... Well, last year, sorry, last year. He was a Nobel Prize of Literature. It was a pro Portuguese writer. His name was Saramago. And he wrote a book about Cain. It's called Cain. Okay. And um, he's a man that writes... He's, he's, he's like Voltaire. and you know, He's like one of these atheists. And in most of his books, what he does is to reject traditional religion. He's not really rejecting God. He's rejecting traditional religion. Okay? And I, I said, you know, I wish I could have him as a patient one day. Well, but he died a few weeks ago. But um, because I wanted to talk to him one-to-one. -one. And... Um, and I'm almost sure what that man was, was a rebellious man against traditional religion and not against God. And that's the experience in secularized nations. You go to, you, you to the U.S., it's the same thing. You go to the two coasts, you leave the Bible Belt. You don't have to leave the Bible Belt. Right here. There are many people who don't understand many issues, but they are not unspiritual. They are irreligious, perhaps, but not unspiritual. So...
that's been a journey that has just started. And I think this journey has produced a paradigm shift in me. It's a, it's a different way of perceiving reality. I don't know if it is the way of perceiving reality, because reality is reality, and we try and come close to it. But it is, I believe, a closer way of perceiving reality. And in that closer way of perceiving reality, we understand everybody as spiritual beings. Point number one. Second, if everybody is a spiritual being, because we're all children of the same God, God made us all the same, okay, then there is a call for me to reevaluate my own way of perceiving truth, other people, and how to approach them. And let me tell you that I believe that through this grassroots approach, the character of Christ will be accepted by thousands and millions of people that today are apparently closed. But health ministries, and just a little thing about health ministries, is the entering wedge to this place. To this place where we can talk heart to heart. And a revolution is going to come. It's a spiritual revolution called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, He will help people to understand and to accept. But it will help us also to share more closely to Christ's character. Now, I know we've come to the end of the time. There were so many things we could talk about. So many more things. But we need to close now. But before then, I would like to give you opportunity to just share some of your thoughts, some of your, of your experiences um, in your own areas. Okay, you live, most of you live in the U.S. I don't know if this is the same here, but I, I would say that most, at least large cities and the two coasts, probably more secularized than the, the sort of mid-America and the, and the southern states. But I, my observation is that that is applicable everywhere, really. Okay. And so, yes. Um, I just got an email a couple of days ago. I spent about uh, seven weeks ago, I spent a day with a realtor up in northern Idaho. I was looking for some remote property. Never met this guy before. I spent the whole day with him. She's a Christian. We pretty much talked about stuff, just the two of us, all day long. I kind of connected with him. He made a comment at the end. He said, this has been one of the most amazing days of my life. Just sent this email to me. I have it right now. It says he, he went around some property, talked about it, and he goes, and just a side note, I'm a physician also. You know that the most important thing some patients say is on the way out the door. Yeah. <laughs> Foot, yeah. He's, he's a just a little note. This is clear at the end of his email. Just a little note. I'm probably going to start observing the Sabbath. Wow. He says, Amen. based upon my searching, I think we are missing the boat. I'm going to do some more research. I didn't even give him a study on the Sabbath. I don't know where he got that information. We just talked. We just connected. You know, there is a little island just that belongs to, to, to Portugal called Madeira. Okay? Beautiful island. 
And the recent, the most recent census, um, well, there are about 300 Adventists in that island, 300 only, okay, and thousands of other people, okay, 300 Adventists. They did a census. In a census, do you know how many people claim to be Seventh-day Adventists? About 12,000. Okay, 300 come to church. Why? Well, we could try and imagine. But one thing that I've observed is that many people, many, many, many people, Sabbath is not a problem. They accept it. You know, the state of the dead, all that's, you know, you ask them. They, they're not coming to church. They left the church. Those are not issues. It's either some personal sin, you know, some problem with that they cannot, you know, they, they, they just feel unworthy to come to a church because they're, coping, they're trying to cope with something in their lives. Or the message has not been given in a platter of love. See, and this is what people are looking in secularized nations. For integrity, okay? You mix with young people in the pubs in the UK, you go there, and are these drunks, you know, these, they completely, but you know what they're looking for in somebody? Integrity, honesty, and when they see all these groups and, you know, the, the money laundering and all, you know, all the, the, the pomp and, the, and the, the churches and the houses and the offices and all of that, and they look at this, no, this is not in line with what I read in the life of Jesus. So they say, there's no truth here. Or they say, there might be truth, but there's no character. Okay, so they move off. What people are looking, and they probably saw that in you, well, somebody who could sit with them, you know, and just be yourself. And they could sense, and people sense when there's, there is an integrous person around. You know, somebody that, you know, really does what they, they, they are saying. And you sense, and you are attracted by that. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, controversial person. Some people said she was a, you know, I'm not going to go into that. When you think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, what do you think about? Hmm? Love and, you know, do you think about her spiritualistic views of life? You know, she believed in life after death. Do you believe, you know, do you think about that immediately? No. You think of somebody who really cared for that person and what did she do? She gave up everything in her life to do what? Who care? And you know, young people around the world were attracted by that. And they joined the movement. Willing to sacrifice a companion for life, they've become nuns in the order of whatever order, you know, that was it. It takes a lot of guts to do that. It's because you see what? Integrity. Now, when they find out that it wasn't, you know, that there are problems in the chicken coop, you know, it's, uh, and they all fight and things like that, then, you know, they, they, then the thing also, it, but it integrity, people are looking for that. Be around people as a friend, mm-hmm. like you were. Be yourself. Follow the character of Jesus. Reevaluate your beliefs and just be there. Be there. Just like Jesus was there mingling with the people. Other comments? Yes, Connor.
became very friendly to me all of a sudden. I thought, oh, you know, she sees something. And she, you know, we started talking in the aisles, we kept passing in the aisles with our small children. I thought she's really being friendly. And then as I went to check out, she suddenly came up. She's been kind of following me up and down in the aisles. Hmm. And she ran up to me and handed me a flyer for something for her, you know, something that was being held at her church. And marked the way, like, oh, I accomplished it. You know, I did it. And I had never been on the receiving end of that before. I had you know, done things like that. I would never been on the other end. And I was, I was destroyed in a way. I, I realized, yeah. wow, this whole, you can't fake friendship. Yeah. You can't. No strings attached, just be yourself. And you know what? The greatest challenge for evangelism is not the secularized world. It's me. It's me. It's in the way I perceive people and the truth. I'm the greatest challenge. Yes, Ron. They come. You invite friends that already trust you. That's what happened in Portugal. Those 600,000 booklets, okay. There was one church, they had 30 visitors. 30. One church. You know what they were? Who they were? They were the friends, long-standing friends of people who were church members. And they came. People that had been, you know, in contact with others. And there was another problem. The booklet itself. This is very interesting. This would be a fascinating study for the church. There were 600,000, 700,000 booklets given, Steps to Christ. Who read Steps to Christ? It's a nice flyer to introduce somebody to an evangelistic series, isn't it? People perceive the book as an invitation to the evangelistic series and not the hope for those people. See, once again, it's that what, what you said, you know, the strings attached. There were strings attached to the book. And so what happened, very few people came to the church. For the evangelistic series. But you know how many? More than 100 phone calls from people about the book. The book. And before the book was distributed, I felt very uneasy about this distribution. Because I felt that church members were... Well, no. The pastors were putting the hope on the book to be an invitation to the evangelistic series. And they were not putting... The value of the book in the hope it carries to people. It's the book. It's the message in the book. And the phone calls came from people everywhere. Just, you see, are you the Adventist church? I just want to tell you my story. I got this book somewhere, you know, on a train or whatever. You know, somebody dropped. And, and I read this. And I tell you, I found hope in this book. That is what the book carried. And if we look at it that way, that was success. And there are many thousands of people now, perhaps with more hope. Perhaps praying in the silence in their home, in the middle, middle of their infidelity, of their marriage or whatever, probably found some hope. But they didn't come to the evangelistic series. And so we call it a secularized nation. No, come on. 
we are blind. So we are the greatest challenge to evangelism. Not because we're not involved in evangelistic campaigns, but because our own characters perceive things in a different way. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.